So how many of you uh, remember when, um, so all of you won't remember this because our culture's changed, but how many of you remember kind of back, back in the day when, when family or relatives or friends would just drop by your house without, without letting you know they were coming? Anybody remember those days, right? It, 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 some of you don't even know what this word is. It was called company. Do you remember that? We used to have company. Remember, right? And, and your mom always had, you know, like a, some dessert in the freezer. Nobody was allowed to touch because it was in, in case company came over. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody, nobody does that anymore. Yeah, that's, that's not even a thing. Do you remember when the doorbell would ring and it was good news? Uh, that doesn't happen anymore, does it? Now if somebody rings the doorbell, you know, you get your gun and pull up your uh, closed-circuit video camera on your app to see who's at the door. Whole, whole, nother, whole nother day. People used to come over spontaneously. They would drop by. And, and we were thrilled. It wasn't an interruption. I remember when I was about five or six years old, a bunch of my cousins came over and, you know, aunts and uncles and whoever else, relatives. And uh, family life used to kind of work like this. Some of you remember this. All the adults were in, were in one room. The kids weren't allowed. Do you remember this? Kids weren't allowed in the adult room. Uh, they were in there drinking coffee, and they'd be talking and sharing stories. And if you as a kid came into the adult room, oh, they, hey, go in there and play with them. You remember that? You weren't allowed. You didn't go in there whining and crying and all that. You go in there and play with them. And, and the adults were louder than the kids. Anybody remember that? Oh, you know, they'd be laughing, and the kids were kind of supposed to stay in the other room and play. And uh, back in those days, nobody watched the kids. The kids watched themselves. Yeah, you remember, some of you remember this. You handle it. Work it out. And, and you established pecking order pretty quick. The biggest kid kind of told everybody else what to do. And, and you never went into the adult room unless somebody was injured. And then it was okay. If somebody got hurt, it's okay to come in. You know, depending on how bad it is, they'll figure out how to, how to handle that. And, and, and here's the other thing. When you went in, if you weren't hurt, you told to go play. And it was absolutely, it was absolutely terrible. When you were stuck alone as a kid with nothing but kids in the room, I mean, it was miserable. There were no video games. There were no iPhones. There were no social media platforms. It was like abuse. The toys weren't even good. Do you remember? We had to use, I don't know, our imagination. We had to think and be creative, and we had to make up games, and we actually had to learn how to talk to each other. Not in emojis, and we had to solve our own problems and resolve our own conflicts. Like I said, it was a terrible environment for children. 1-800-CHILD-ABUSE. It was miserable. When I was about five or six years old, uh, when, when those cousins came over, I, I can remember one of us had a dream. And our dream was that we could fly. You know, we were marooned in the front room of the house all by ourselves. We had to make up stuff. And one of us had a dream that we could fly. We knew if we really applied ourselves, we could fly. So we spent most of the night with bath towels tied around our neck, jumping off stuff. Because we just were convinced, you know, shah, you know, like that. You kind of had a 90-degree angle. Your arms went out and nothing else did, you know. Couldn't really expand all the way out. So we would just jump off things. And the acid test on whether or not you could actually fly was if you could turn mid-flight. If you could jump out there and then take a right angle, you know, 90 degree, then, then, then you could really fly. And I can remember one faithful takeoff, I, I was hitting midair, and, and I remember turning right in the middle, and I stuck the landing, and then I turned and looked at my cousins, and I said, did you see that? 
I turned a corner. I can fly. I'm the king of the world. And, and you know what's crazy about it? They believed it. And I believed it. And, and at least that's how I remember it. And I'm pretty sure that none of us ever actually flew or turned mid-flight. But, but, but you, you got to imagine, we would wrangle our little bodies in all these contortions trying to make it work. And our imaginations were just screaming. And even though none of us ever really flew and we had this burning dream, you know, we gave up on it within probably the next 30 minutes when it was time to go home. And I wonder how many of you this morning have ever given up on any of the dreams you had. Or maybe even worse, you say, I don't really have any dreams or I don't know what my dreams are or I don't know how to find them. Well, that's what this series is about called God Dreams. We started this series and I believe God has a plan for your life. You're not just randomly floating around, bumping into things coincidentally, hoping that one day significance is going to land on your life. God made you, he designed you, he created you as a unique person with gifts and strengths for a purpose. And we call this God dreams. So where do these visionary dreams come from? You, you may say, well, duh, you just told us they're God dreams. So they come from God. Yes, but how do you find them? Billy Graham was driven for over 60 years to preach in stadiums all over the world because he was consumed by a dream to tell people about the joy of a personal relationship with Jesus and the power and presence of God to change a person's life. And over one billion people have heard him deliver that message. My question is, though, how did Billy Graham get that way? How, how, what happened to him to get him to a place that he could see that dream? So I think the wrong question probably is, or at least the wrong question to start with probably is, don't ask the question, what is God's dream for my life? Ask the question, what needs to happen inside me to see the dream? Because the dream's already made. It already exists in its full potential. It was created at the same time that you were. God formed you and knew you in your mother's womb. He made you unique with gifts and strengths and talents and experiences. And he formed all this together according to his own plan. So the dream is already there. It's not still being made up. So the question's not, what's the dream becoming? The question is, what, what needs to happen inside me to see the dream? About 10 or 15 years ago, I heard this phrase for the first time. You, you may or may not have ever heard it. Holy discontent. I, I, the first person I ever heard say it was Bill Hybels, a pastor in Chicago. I don't know where it came from. But, but that phrase grabbed my attention. Because a holy discontent is a stir inside of you that says, I cannot sit by any longer and watch this thing happen. I've got to get involved. It's a discontent in your soul that says, it's wrong for me to just continue going the way it is, and it's wrong for me to do nothing about it. That's what holy discontent is. It's a righteous stirring of the soul. We read about it in Romans chapter 8. 
It describes this ache down deep inside the soul of every Christian that God put there. It's a longing for God to have his way, and it's a dissatisfaction with everything else. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and a holy discontent is a dissatisfaction with every time God doesn't get his way. Kind of like a puppy whimpering to get out of the cage at the pet store. Romans 8.23 says, listen, listen to it, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan, groan inwardly. Is there, is there, a, is there a groan inside your soul this morning? Is there, is there an aching? Is there a longing? Is there a spiritual and a righteous and a holy longing and aching down deep inside your soul? Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemptions of our bodies patiently. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with what? With gro- the Spirit of God groans. The Holy Spirit groans. Inside you and our spirit groans with words that cannot be expressed. This is a fever pitch intercession that pours out of our soul that begs for the whole world to wrap up and God's kingdom to come and reign the way that He wants it to. Now, right in between the discontentment of our soul and the brokenness of a world that is not yet the way God wants it, God drops a dream right in between those two and motivates us toward it. And that dream motivates us to make a difference. Moses, if you know that story, found holy discontent when his people were in slavery and an Egyptian murdered one of the Israelites, one of his people. And Moses reacted wrongly. But there was a passion inside of him that drove him to say, I cannot sit here another day and watch God's people drown in slavery and bondage and not become everything God wants them to be. And, he, and, he, and, he, and from there, watch, he went to the burning bush. And, and God spoke to him from the bush. My contention to you is it was not the burning bush experience or moment that that drove Moses. It was something that was already happening inside his soul that allowed him to hear and to see the burning bush when it happened. That's my contention. I'm calling that holy discontent. King David found holy discontent when his enemies were were harassing God's people and a giant was challenging them to fight. Remember Goliath? This big nine-foot giant. And then then David, in in um, in, in this passionate moment of outrage, this young teenage kid, David, with all these experienced warriors and fighters cowering down, stands up and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare challenge the armies of the living God? Just raw passion. Something rose up inside him and said, you can't talk to God's people like that. We're not going to have that anymore. Something inside him. Well, Nehemiah was another one of those people who found their holy discontent. To understand his discontentment, you have to understand the circumstances 
by which that discontentment was born. Now, a couple of summers ago, we did a, um, a whole series on the book of Nehemiah called When the Walls Are Gone. And it was uh, powerful, incredible. For those of you who are here, let me just kind of remind you of some of that background. If you weren't here, let me catch you up. In Nehemiah's time, to live in a city with no walls was dangerous for a strong city. But Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was no strong city. It was, it was a little, um, like a little weak little settlement filled with people who had survived years of slavery and others who just survived in this little war-torn village. And without walls, this little village had no ability to defend itself, to grow crops, to protect their children. Without walls, you don't really even have a city. You're just vulnerable on every side. And the worst part is the other nations, the other uh, foreign nations who worshipped other gods were laughing at the God of Israel and making fun of the God of Israel and saying, He's no God at all. He's not powerful at all. He can't even help you rebuild the city. Look how weak you are. Look at the ruins that you live in. And they were making fun of God. And I want to I read to you Nehemiah's response when he heard all of this. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Did you hear that? Nehemiah said, I wept and I mourned and I fasted and I prayed. It just broke him inside. It wrecked him. That's holy discontent. That's it. That's where God dreams come from. The place down deep inside you where I, you say, I just can't take it anymore. Something somebody has to do something and something has to be done and I just can't take it anymore. When God sees that stir inside a person, here's what I believe he does. I believe he says, you know what, I can't stand it anymore either. Nehemiah, I don't want my people to be unprotected and weak. God had a dream to build a strong nation and a great people to reflect his glory all over the earth. And God was saying, Nehemiah, what breaks your heart breaks my heart. And I'm going to do something supernatural from heaven and I'm going to send you to get involved. And I think this is the key to understanding what God's dreams are all about. When God's heart and a human heart come into alignment about what frustrates heaven and earth. You have holy discontent. Let me, let me explain it a little bit different way. I want to show you a picture and ask you how, many of you, how many of you know who this is? How many of you know who this is? Papa Sailor. Okay, how many of you don't know who this is? How many? Everybody knows? Really? Wow, thank you, thank you, Google. All right, good. This is Popeye, the sailor man. Now, if you can remember, this is a wonderful cartoon I grew up on. And his girlfriend was, was 
olive oil. I'm just fascinated to know how our translators are going to deal with that. This is, this is olive oil. And boy, she was a traffic stopper. You know what I mean? I mean, just uh, if this was remade today, she would not look like that. You know, a, a broom with a, with a hair. Whenever anything threatened olive oil, pressure would begin to build inside of Popeye. Do you remember this? And he would go from one level to another level until he blew up and he said the words that you probably can quote. That's all I can stands. Come on, say the rest of me. Because I can't stands no more. Do you remember that? Popeye. And he would, he would grab a can of spinach and squeeze it. Never understood how he got that strong before he ate the spinach, but that's another thing. He would grab the can of spinach and squeeze it until the spinach jumped right out of the can mid-flight and went straight down his throat. And you remember what happened when the spinach would hit him. Supernatural power would fill his body and his arms would blow up. And they weren't even close to anatomically correct at all. Do you remember that? Them big giant arms? Yeah. And his arms would blow up and he would save olive oil every time. Every time he'd always save her. And, and that, that single line means something to us on a profound level. This is what Nehemiah is feeling. That's all I can stands. Because I can't stands no more. And he's weeping and he's mourning and he's fasting and he's praying. Time out. How's your 21 days of prayer and fasting going? As you, as you meet with God... And read his word and talk to him and make space for prayer. Is there any frustration beginning to rise in your heart about something in the world that's wrong that needs to be set right? Is some of God's heart rubbing off on you as you get close to him? Are you, are you being stirred up somewhere inside? How's all that going? What can't you stand? What is your holy discontent? It was, it was when Moses was at the burning bush saying, I can't stand it anymore. God, please use me. That's when God filled his heart with a dream. God fills the holy discontent in Moses and puts a dream in his heart. Here's something, if you want to, I don't have any formal points this morning. If you want to write this down, here's a thought for the day. God puts his dream in the hearts of those who have a growing holy discontent. Don't say, what's God's dream for my life? Say, what is my holy discontent level? How stirred up am I? What's going on inside? Because that's the heart that God puts his dream inside of, or maybe said another way, that's the heart that God allows to see the dream that's been there all along. What can't you stand? I hope you know what it is. When, when I uh, grew up, I went to a little church about 35 or 40 people and it had good people there were good people in the church uh, my great-grandfather had started that church way before I was born but I was one of the only young people left in the whole church and it was dying and it was um, declining and and uh, I got to the point about 12 or 13 years old where I just couldn't I just couldn't sit through another service. And I just quit. 
the, the legalism and, and the, um, the ought-tos and the ought-not-tos and, and the tight legalism just didn't produce anything. And, and I just gave up on it. And a few years later, several teenagers and my basketball coach and um, one of my teachers reached out to me about three years later and invited me to church. And through those relationships, I found a relationship with Jesus. And it set my heart on fire. And I, I, I just, I was, um, I was overwhelmed because I couldn't believe the difference. I couldn't believe the difference that a relationship with Jesus and, and a connection uh, with a church that was alive. I couldn't believe the difference that it made on the inside of me. And I wanted everybody to know. I wanted everybody. I thought I had found a secret. I thought nobody really knows this. How have we been hiding this all these years? This is incredible. It's the best thing ever. And I wanted everybody to know. And it became a personal passion of mine that people who don't know Jesus would come to know him the way that I did. And it made my soul hurt and it made my heart ache when I looked at the emptiness inside other people. Uh, and let me tell you what happened. God used that holy discontent to drag me into ministry. I never had an ambition. I never wanted to be a pastor. It never crossed my mind that I could be. But, he, but here's what I did want. I wanted people to know the same level of joy and fulfillment and, and, and goodness that I knew from relation. It never dawned on me, never dawned on me that the best way that could happen is for me to, become, to go into ministry. I didn't care about that. All I cared about is I wanted people to know the same love and the same joy that I knew. And, and look, to this very day, Nothing moves me more than watching a person who was dead in faith find a relationship with Jesus and come alive. Just come alive. Things begin to change. The marriage changes. The family changes. The relationship changes. The outlook changes. The joy changes. The enthusiasm changes. Everything begins to change. There's nothing that fills my heart with joy more than to watch that happen in someone like a flower blooming. It is phenomenal. This very day, it's so moving. When somebody raises their hand and says, I want to pray that prayer. I want to start a relationship with God because I remember the, the direction my life was going when I raised my hand and that happened in my soul. I remember it. And you never know the history that's being changed, the life that's being changed. And it stirred up a holy discontent in my soul. It's not okay that people don't know Jesus. It's not okay. It's not okay. Just yawn and say, well, there's a million churches. and No, it's not okay. And I believe God's discontent about it. Several years after I went into ministry, we pastored in Mississippi and I had another moment where I saw the holy discontent of God stir in my own life. Hurricane Katrina blew through our community. Our church was about two miles from the Gulf. And in the aftermath of that storm, thousands of people came from all over the place. Uh, from Hawaii and Alaska and about every state I could think of in America and other countries. And lived on our property and helped with our recovery efforts, which became an epicenter of recovery for that community. And we had a little, um, we had a medical clinic 
we treated 10,000 patients. And we had doctors who would come through and volunteer. And we had a little snack area for our, volun- for our uh, doctors. And I was in the little snack room one day uh, talking to one of the doctors. And NPR News came on the radio. And the NPR News report happened to be about Hurricane Katrina recovery. And so they were talking about it. So everybody kind of stopped, you know, because we're in the middle of it. But we didn't have electricity. I mean, communications weren't good. You didn't know what was going on around you. And so if you could get a little report, you'd wonder what's, what's happening in the outside world. And we heard this report live come in. And they interviewed a doctor who was in um, Northern California who had been beating the door down trying to find the Red Cross, the, what FEMA, whatever organizations they could, beating the door down to find a way to get into Mississippi or, or New Orleans or somewhere to come volunteer and help. And all she got was red tape after red tape after red tape. So they stuck the microphone in her face and interviewed and she said, I couldn't take it anymore. I bought a plane ticket and, I, and I'm flying down to the coast. And that report went off and I thought, and we were all quiet, well, wow. And one of the doctors looked at me when went off and she said, hey, do you know uh, the lady they just interviewed? Yes. She, uh, she, the doctor said to me, she's here. I said, what do you mean here? She's in the next Sunday school classroom treating patients. I said, take me to her now. I have to meet her. I have to meet this crazy person. I want to know. I want to know what makes her tick. I want to know what was in her heart. I want to know what was stirring inside her. What is that passion about? And I saw it. I saw it. I saw it live. I saw it up close. I looked in her eyes. And there she was from Northern California standing in our Sunday school classroom treating patients. And there was a holy discontent inside of her. And I had the privilege of seeing a miracle. I saw something most people never get to see. I got to see the church of Jesus in its full potential. Unbelievable. I saw... I saw people consumed with a dream to help medical teams and cooks and organizers and servants and construction workers and tree trimmers and uh, all bound together by a purpose. And I watched people move in their passions and I saw something that I longed to see again. Can you imagine what our church would look like if everybody in this church was moving in a holy discontent? Can you imagine what it would be like to show up every Sunday and people are moving in a passion because they're being driven by a holy discontent inside their soul? If everyone knew God's dream for their life and we passionately pursued it together, can you imagine what it would happen? Not just to this church, can you imagine what would happen in this community? It would be like a fire set loose. So I... Maybe you say, man, that's a lot. <laughs> well, it is a lot. And, 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 but, it's not, but it's not a lot in that it's complicated. Do you know the whole reason? I, I want to give you a little, little pitch a minute for live streams. Do you know the whole reason we started live streams? Because we wanted to help people find out what God made them strong at. So that they may not waste their life, but use it for God's kingdom and glory. So one day when you get to heaven and you look back and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You can look behind you and you can see a whole line of eternal fruit that followed your life through this life into the next one. And so we started live streams for that purpose to disciple, to equip, to prepare. 
And if you've never gone through live streams, I, we're going to do one in February. You can, uh, on the uh, info guide, there's a tear-off on the website. Look, if you want to do it, figure out how to do it. We've made it easy. We've made it accessible. But if, you, if there's a holy discontent in you, I would say the place to start is right there. And, and, and let us teach you and work with you and help you find what God made you to do and what God made you to be. Until you find a place of holy discontent, a God dream is only going to be another hobby or, a, or another novelty for you. And that's not what it is. It, the stakes are too high. One of the most important things you can do in your life is find the holy discontent inside you. So what is it? Is it uh, poverty? Is it, is it injustice? Is it um, people who've never had the opportunity to hear the gospel one time? Is it young people who are just wounded and drifting aimlessly in, uh, in life further and further from God? Is it children who are like little sponges that just soak up every nugget of truth that you lay down in front of them? Is it marriage? Is it racism and division? Is it people from other cultures? Is it missions? Is it the dysfunctional family? What, what, what when you look at it, what when, you, when your heart rubs up next to it, what, what breaks your heart? What stirs you? What moves you? What about when a church dies? It breaks my heart when I, when I and this happening more and more, when I drive around or go to another part of the country and I look and you see for sale signs in a church yard. It breaks my heart. The church that reached me was the most alive church I'd ever seen. Because I came from a little church that was legalistic and all that. And the church that reached me was alive. But years and years later, you know what happened? That thing closed. The church that reached me, the church that I found God in, the church that stirred my heart, closed. And for years when I would go home to see my family, I would, I would find a way to slip off by myself to run an errand or something, and I would drive into the parking lot of that church, and I would sit in the parking lot, and I would look at the building, and I can remember when I first found Jesus, and the steps I would go up and down, and the other kids who found him, and the other adults who found him, and the people who were called to ministry and filled with the Holy Spirit, and who had powerful life-changing God encounters, and I would sit there and look at old windows broken out, and rusty things, doors ripped off, so you could just rain would flow and I would look in there and would just cry and it would wreck my heart it would wreck me and you know what I wanted it to wreck me I wanted it to ruin me because I didn't want to ever forget what the stakes are the stakes are eternal I wanted to wake up from any sense of falling asleep at the wheel and not understanding what the stakes are of what we do what wrecks your soul what wrecks you? You better know what wrecks you because it's probably already been wrecking God for a long time and he's looking for someone who's as discontent about it as he is and then he's going to pipe a dream straight inside your soul. And it will drive you. And he will allow you to relieve yourself, to let that dream out. And it will motivate you and drive you for a long time. Nehemiah chapter uh, 2, verse 12. Let me try to bring this back to where we live. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what, God, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. How do you know a God dream when you see it? 
What will that holy discontentment do in you? Here's what it will do. It will produce a longing to help other people. Did you see what he said? He said, I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do, not period, for Jerusalem. For Jerusalem. One of the ways you know it's an idea that God put in your heart is it will be for others. Other people will benefit more than you do. Don't tell me uh, you, your dream is to own an RV and to drive to every state. Don't tell me about your dream of a vacation home or your dream to see the seven wonders of the world or your dream house. Don't tell me about any of that. That dream is for you and it is about you. Tell me what dream God has put in your heart for other people. That's a God dream. This might be a good dream and it might be a good idea, but it's not a God dream. It's not the same thing. Don't medicate your holy discontent. Don't drown it in comfort and hobbies and personal interest. And don't numb it in entertainment and cultural experiences. Get up close enough to the pain and the need that your heart gets wrecked. And then something, then now you're a candidate. Remember the question we started with? What would have to happen in me to receive? You can't just get a God dream. You can't just go get one. Dollar General doesn't sell them. Amazon doesn't even have them. You can't just dot com one. Something has to happen in you. They're not on the shelf. Something has to happen in you. What is that? A holy discontent. I love um, to hear this story. Maybe I've told it to you. I don't know. Ron McManus, who was a pastor in North Carolina for maybe 30 years. You probably didn't, never heard the name. I, I've heard him tell this story a couple times. And I love every time he tells it because it just stirs my heart. When he was a kid in Biloxi, Mississippi, he grew up in a church kind of like this. And uh, there was a, a little grandmother of a, a, a Senior adult little grandmother who taught middle school uh, Sunday school class. And I forget how many years. I don't know how many years. Years and years and years and years and years and years. She taught that class. And that class was her passion. You did not grow up in that church and you did not go through middle school without going to little grandma, what her name was, Sunday school class. You had to go through her class. She wasn't going to have it any other way. And all these kids, through all these, went through class, and she was a little old lady burning with a passion and a holy discontent that young middle school kids would know Jesus. And do you know what happened from that class? Forty-three pastors and missionaries came from that Sunday school class. Forty-three. <laughs> because something broke her heart, and she couldn't just sit there and do nothing about it. She couldn't just observe she couldn't just be a spectator. She couldn't just flip the remote. She had to get involved. I've got a question for you today. What has God put in your heart to do for someone else? And, and I guess the other question is, what are you risking? What are you sacrificing and risking for that to happen? You and I only have one life. We don't get a redo. We don't get a second one. We don't get to say, well, I wasn't ready. 
You and I have one life. And that's all we get. And I just want to encourage you in this season of prayer and fasting, as God is stirring and working, that you don't let this season go by without rubbing shoulders with God enough that your discontent shakes up a little bit. And you begin to find God's dream for you. Next week, we're going to continue this God dream series. And I hope that you'll come. I hope I didn't scare you away with all the energy and the passion and the just I was just on a retreat with teenagers this weekend and got up at 6 o'clock this morning it was 17 degrees and loaded my car and my body hurt because I'm not 24 anymore and my bones got cold but there was a fire in my soul and I couldn't wait to get here to say to you and to say to God hey do it in me again do it in me again do it again I want to just I don't want to just numb out I don't want to live and die and then one day realize it really didn't make a difference at all I just consumed things my whole life I didn't leave anything I want to leave something I want to leave something I want to deposit something in somebody else's life that's one of the great meanings of life would you stand with me this morning I want us to pray today with every eye closed, I, I want to I do this a little differently. I just want to ask our prayer team if you would come and stand in front of the front row. Our prayer team, just come and stand in front of the front row and face me. We're going to do this a little bit differently today. Just right in front of the front row and just face me. Face the front. With every eye closed, I, I, I'm not going to draw you out because here's what I learned you don't talk people into anything not anything godly <laughs> either God is stirring your heart or he's not either God is working or he's not or either you're aware of it or you're not and it's okay if you're not I've lived, I've lived seasons of my life when I didn't know and it's okay not to know it's okay it's okay but for those of you today who say something flickered in me today and I want to ask God to stir my heart I want to ask Him in, in this time of prayer that God will stir my heart, that He'll help me. He'll, if He won't help me today find the dream, He'll at least help me get in the position that I can. Maybe some of you here and say, my dreams have died, and, and uh, I'm asking God to bring them back to life. I'm asking God to do, to do a breakout in me, to break out from where I am and what I'm going through what's happening and I, I need God's touch today so here's all I'm going to ask you to do with every eye closed if you want to lift your hand and say I, I, I want to ask God today to stir me I want to ask God to stir me I want to ask him today to stir my heart would you lift your hand and say today I need God to stir me I need God to stir me maybe you're like me and you're saying stir me again stir me again God stir me again stir me again I don't want to be left like this God stir me again do it again. 
God, I want to make a difference. I want to find your dream. Maybe your dreams have been suffocated. And you say, God, help me. Help me through the circumstances that I'm in. Just lift your hand. Help me in the circumstances that I'm in. That you can't control. Maybe you can't control any of it. It just happened to you. But God today is going to reignite a flame in you. Here's what I want you to do. If you lifted your hand, all I want you to do is come and stand in the front. And I want, as you come, I want you to begin to pray. And I just want you to ask God to stay. And I want you to wait for a minute. That's all. You're going to pray and wait. The prayer team is going to slip behind you, put their hand on your shoulder, and they're just going to pray for you. They're going to pray for you. So if you lifted your hand, I want you to come right now. You come right now. Come right now. Come on. Our hands all over the building. Come on right now. If you lifted your hand, you come right now. On the balcony, I want you to come right now. In the back, I want you to come right now. And prayer team, I just want you to walk around and put your hand on the back of these folks who are praying and just pray for them. And as you're praying, I want you to just begin to pray. Go ahead and begin to sing. As you're praying, I just want you to be asking God, God, stir me now. Come on, God, just stir me. Just wait for him. Just wait for him. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to make anything happen. God's going to do the work. You say, Lord, stir me. Come on, God, stir me. Come on, God, stir me. Come on, God, stir me. Come on, Lord, touch me today. Touch me. Ignite something inside me. Let a, let a fire live in me. Stir my heart. Stir me up today, Lord.